Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for the gospel that makes the many one. We thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world in local churches um, who in their own context of communities and celebrations and burdens and crises uh, that you and your word binds us together in love and unity. And so Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have today to look at Hebrews, um, to apply it to our own hearts and to our own church we ask that your will be done, Lord. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So as you heard, uh, what was just read for you was not Proverbs. Uh, we're taking a break from the book of Proverbs for two weeks, and we're going to do this for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that we are simultaneously a church which is everywhere and nowhere. If you're a church metrics person, we are officially multi-site. We are in person, in storage, and under construction. Um, we're here in the library. We have things in storage at the gym of our old property, and we are under construction on the old Coke building. And yet on top of that, there's a growing majority of us, I think we have used every single one of our chairs we have here today, um, a growing majority of us that are in this space, but also a large segment of us who forever, whatever reason, are watching at home because of the pandemic that we're living in. We are uh, not the church that we will hopefully be long-term, and yet we are simultaneously not less than a church. We're a church that's a little bit different because of everything going on in our world, and yet, we're a church that can still be faithful to what God has called us to be. And the only way we can navigate that tension of not but already is if we actually understand what the Bible says a church is and how a church is to act. And so seeing what the Bible says about us and our identity helps shape our actions when the world is not ideal. But secondly, um, we have a congregational members meeting coming up in two weeks. We want to prepare our members. We want to pre prepare those who might aspire to be members. If that's you, you could certainly talk to an elder or someone else here. Um, we want to prepare our members and our aspiring members for what the Bible says the responsibility is to be a member of a local church, what it means to be Christian together. We have the privilege at this meeting of uh, accepting new individuals into our midst, releasing others who have moved away or attended other churches, and we also get to exercise biblical congregationalism in what our church is physically going to look like, to give updates on the building fund and the construction and the costs and things that are going on there. And we also have a unique opportunity at this next congregational members meeting to help a brother who has fallen into sin and is in need of help. But before we look at what the church does, the Bible calls us to consider what the church is. That is to ask the questions like, what is the nature of the church? What are we doing here? What do we think about it? What constitutes a church? And why is it important to the life of the Christian? And we're gonna spend two weeks in Hebrews chapter 10. If you're not there already, I invite you to open up to it to look at what it means to be a church. The biblical word for church is just the word ecclesia, which means assembly. It's this actual physical place, this where people gather. And the word ecclesia is made up of two Greek parts of grammar. The prefix ek, 
which means out, and the root kaleo, which means called. The church is literally an assembly of the called out ones. It's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2 when he says that God called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, and now you are a people. The church is the gathering of those who have been called out by what and to what. That's what we need to answer. And that's what we're going to answer today in Hebrews. And we're going to see this in three ways, three things the church is called for and called to do. First, in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, we're going to see that the church is called together in the gospel. Then in verse 23, we're going to see that the church is called together in sound doctrine. And then lastly, in verses 24 and 25, we're going to see the church is called together for love and encouragement. I think that's what I said, love and works. We'll go with encouragement. It's better, it's what I thought of before I changed my PowerPoint. Um, uh, we'll look at that later. So the first thing we wanna do today is we wanna ask ourselves the question, why in the world are you here? Why in the world is any Christian anywhere on Sunday morning? Why do we gather as local churches? And this is gonna be our first point today. The church is called together in the gospel. Now, when I ask the question, why in the world are you here? The answer you presuppose, the answer you already have about why the church exists shapes your view of the church. If you think church exists just because Baptists like a good potluck or a good spiritual snuggle on a weekly basis, then you'll probably have a wrong view of the church. If you think the church exists because the church itself is the dispenser of salvation, to belong to the church is ultimately how you are saved and therefore by building up an attendance record in the church, you build up currency towards God you too will have a wrong view of the church. But praise God, he gives us the Bible, which gives us a biblical view of the church. And what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10 is that the church exists because the gospel creates a people who approach God together. The church exists because the gospel creates a people who approach God together. And the book of Hebrews actually shows that the coming together of God's people, this assembly of God's people, is actually central to the entire storyline of God's word. In fact, I was just talking to a member before church. We're reading Leviticus and Numbers, and she wants to know, how do we know what's going on? And actually central to the story of Leviticus and Numbers is God's gathering of his people. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, a doctor turned pastor. He pastored in World War II era in Britain. There's this wonderful story about him where London was being bombed um, in World War II on a Sunday morning. Bomb struck really close to the church. Everybody ducked and covered. It broke part of the ceiling. When the bombing was done, he went up to the pulpit, dusted up his Bible, and finished his sermon. So uh, I love stories like that in church history. But he also said this. He was presuming an argument he had heard a lot, and perhaps you've heard a lot, of someone who says they're not really interested in church because they themselves are a spiritual person. And he says... If that's what you say, I have to say but one thing, and that is that you are a very unscriptural person. And the author of Hebrews is showing this by tracing the theme of the entire Old Testament and actually pulling it through the gospel proclaimed in the New Testament as God's fulfillment of everything in the past. Everything was leading up to what the author of Hebrews is now proclaiming to the church. For most of the book, it's been showing that even in the Old Testament temple, there was still a problem, and that primary problem was that there was something that kept God's people from gathering directly in God's presence, which is what we had in the Garden of Eden before sin separated us. People's sins 
our brokenness, our lack of worship for God, and our rebellion keeps us from gathering together as a people before God. Why is that? Because, and this is what we began, fell, God made a plan to once again redwell with his people. He made a plan to redeem them, to crush the serpent, to be with his people. And so we see this plan unfolding in the Old Testament, and part of that happens uh, with these distancing measures that we see when God is dwelling in the midst of his people, Israel. There were substitute sacrifices, that is, animals who died in the place of you. Your sin incurs the punishment of death, but God allowed a placeholder, an animal, to die in your place. There were also priests who were representatives of you. They would take your sacrifice before God and atone for you by sacrificing that animal. And then there was also this geographic distancing, this tiered structure of the temple where the closer you got to God's real presence, the more exclusive and limited the amount of people were who could get there. And so outside the temple, there are these two courts. There's first the court of the Gentiles where anyone could come. Then there was the court of the Jews where only those of Jewish heritage could come. And then there was the inside of the temple. And Hebrews tells us there are two sections. The first section where only priests could go and work. And then in the center of the temple was the most exclusive place called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in that most holy place, God's presence dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant. All of his stunning holiness and radiant beauty dwelled in there, separated from everything else by a massive curtain. And God stood separate from his people and had these distancing measures and these representative priests, and these substitutionary sacrifices so that he could dwell safely in the midst of a people who were broken and in sin. And the author of Hebrews describes how all of this shows that even in the perfect temple of the Old Testament, we couldn't, as God's people, fully approach God. There were barriers that kept God's people from sitting in his wonderful, joyful presence. These sacrifices, the author of Hebrews show, were a placeholder. These priests were just like you and me. They were sinful. And even more, that one time a year where the, the, the high priest one time a year would cast lots to go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, even when he went, two things simultaneously existed. One, that priest was terrified of his own sin. He could only go in after, if you've been reading in the Old Testament Bible reading plan we're in right now, we see all of these rituals and these sprinklings and these cleansings and this blood that is poured out. It was only after he'd been fully atoned for that he could even dare enter into the Holy of Holies. And even with that, if he messed up a ritual, he would die for his sin. But even if he were to be in God's presence, God's people still stood at a distance. The very thing we lost in the garden was near in the temple, but still separate because of the difference between a holy God and an unholy people. But in light of all this, look at how the passage begins today in Hebrews chapter 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
water. What overcame that distance? Jesus, this great priest. Jesus brings us into the most holy place by opening his body as a sacrifice through sin. We go through the veil which separates us from a holy God by going through the veil of Christ's flesh, by taking his death in our place. And there is a great irony for many of us that we are far more introspective on our first date than we are when we stand before God for the first time. On a first date or in our job interview, we might say, will she like me? Do they find me qualified? Do they think of me how I think of me? But when each of us stands before God, and each and every one of us will, you will look at yourself, you will see your sin, and you will understand that God does not indeed like your sin. That you indeed are unqualified to be in his presence. And you have no assurance that a person like you could ever stand before God as good as this. And yet, because of the blood of his holy son who came to earth for us, we again have access to this holy God. Not hand-wringing access, not meekly squeezed out access, but access of full assurance access of confidence because we have come not through the curtain of our own works for we can't work hard enough. We have come through the curtain of grace through Jesus Christ to put our faith in him, to be pulled in by our older brother, Jesus Christ, into the presence of what our sin has lost for us. The gospel is good news, my friends, that you sat under a requirement because of your sin that you could not fill. But Jesus himself did everything required to save sinners and to bring us into the presence of God where we stand unashamed in Christ Jesus. If you have ever felt out of place, condemned, socially awkward, or unqualified before God, you are. (laughs) But the good news of the gospel is that if you come through Christ, he rewrites the entirety of who you are so that you no longer stand condemned and unqualified, but accepted and qualified by the perfect work, the perfect atoning sacrifice of the spotless lamb, the perfect intercession of the great high priest. And you get to come through the presence of God himself in Jesus Christ. If you've never believed that today, I don't know what you might think the gospel is or what it is you might have said no to in Christianity, but this is it. That God takes those who are far off and brings them near by Jesus. That God God rewrites all of your miserable history through the wonderful obedience of Jesus Christ, not because you've earned it, but because Christ came and did it by grace so that he might love you and bring you to God. It is Jesus's blood which sprinkles clean your heart. It is Jesus' sacrifice which washes your dirty conscience and which gives you now a true heart to stand before the holy and righteous God in full assurance that Jesus paid it all. That's how powerful the gospel is. That's how wonderful this great priest forever in Jesus Christ is, the one who always brings us in to the presence of his Father because of his faithful work in your place. That's the wonderful gospel we see in Hebrews 10. 
But you see what's behind that. How is it then that you are supposed to approach God? Together. Do we look at this? There are three key things we see in this passage that we'll see when we look through the whole of it. There are these three calls. Let us approach. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. How do we approach God? As his people. We are drawn to God together as his church. This is the wonderful promise of this. There is a new place in which we encounter the presence of God. One day, one glorious day, we will stand before the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth and it will be unlike anything you've ever experienced. You think of what it's like to be in the presence of your one true love, the presence of the sports star that you watch on TV. Imagine being in the presence of God. That's what's held out for us, that beautiful, purifying, loving relationship. That's what awaits the Christian in the new heavens and the new earth. But right now, Verse 21 tells us that Jesus is a great high priest over a new house of God. What is this house of God? This isn't the first time the author of Hebrews has mentioned it. In fact, if you flip back a couple chapters to Hebrews chapter 3, he tells us what he means by this. Hebrews 3 verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. What is God's house? His people who hold his confession. His people, which we'll see in verse 25, are those who do not forsake gathering together. His people, which you'll see in Hebrews 13, which have shared local leaders. His house is the local church where God dwells in a unique way. There are lots of missionaries, by God's grace, that have gone out into the world to some of the most beautiful places on our planet. And when believers in those places of highest natural wonder want to experience God, they don't turn back to creation desiring to experience him in the height of the Himalayas or on the pristine beaches of the South Pacific. They long and they often give their life to experience God in the local assembly of the local church. Believers in closed countries where the church is under persecution are not longing for Glacier National Park. They're longing for God's gathered people in the church and they give their lives for it. You see, God chose to dwell in the midst of his people in the Old Testament at a distance, isolated, accessible only by a rare individual. But through the work of Jesus Christ, God dwells with us in intimate nearness in the context of his people, the church. First Peter 2, 4 through 5, look at how he proclaims this. Says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, he's speaking to the believers, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It is true that the Holy Spirit dwells individually in the heart of each and every believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful truth in and of itself. But it's also true what Peter is saying, 
that it's even more splendiferous when those are lumped together as holy stones into a holy house. When God places us in the context of one another, he builds a dwelling for God, which we see later on in 1 Peter, that angels long to see. There was a study done in 2014 which shows that groups of people who underwent some sort of shared trauma established a unique sort of relational intimacy among them. It's what researchers began to call in this highly academic term, social glue. And inside the church, the glue which holds us together, the glue which creates a local church is not demographics or political beliefs or economic brackets or shared interests and hobbies. For a church will fall apart if that's the glue of it. But instead, the church is glued together by the shared trauma of our sin which is wiped away by the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. For we are so diverse in where we wandered, we are bound together by the fact that sin caused us to wander. That we sinned against God, but God sent his son for us. We are bound together by the good news of the gospel, saved by grace so that we might worship God together. And in worshiping God together, the experience we get is a greater understanding of his love. Look at this wonderful thing, which if it were not in the Bible, we would cringe at passages like this. But look at how Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter three, as he prays for the church beginning in verse 17. So he's praying, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the powers at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Jesus loves the church. God is glorified in the church. And what we saw in verses 19 or 18 and 19 is that you as the individual believer have a greater capacity to understand the breadth, length, height, and depth and wonder of God's love when you do so with all of the saints in the church. This is where we come together to see the kaleidoscope of God's immense care for you. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, loved the church so much that he was often jailed for it. He was jailed because he refused to believe that the state has the ability to say this is a church. And instead, he knew that it was the gospel and the gospel alone which has the ability to call out a people to worship God together. And he wrote a theology of the church titled this, A Discourse of the Building and Etc. of the House of God. I've read lots of theology books on the church called ecclesiology books. Most of them are rather dry. But what I love about Bunyan's book is that he wrote this discourse on the house of God and the entire book is a series of poems. He loved the church and saw its beauty so clearly that he couldn't help but sing about it. 
And one stanza of his poem, he recognizes that many people in his own day couldn't understand why he loved the church so much, loved seeing the gospel in the midst of the congregation that he was willing to be jailed for it, have his property stripped away from him and to be abused for it. And he realized that some people found the church to be silly, trivial, broken or insignificant. But he knew that at this point in history, which is our point in history, the gospel preaching church is an immense joy to the believer and part of God's plan for redemption. And of one of his stanzas, he says this about the church. So you're gonna see the word it in the first line. It is the church. What though some slight it and it a cottage call, give it the reproachful name of beggar's hall. Yea, though to some it an eyesore is, what though they count it base and at it hiss, call it an almshouse built for the poor, yet kings of old have begged at the door. What John Bunyan is reflecting on is what scripture itself says. In 1 Peter chapter one, he says that you, the church, you, the saints, you called out by the gospel of grace have the things which the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel who saw blazing visions of the presence of God, what they ached to see. You have what he says angels longed to look at. You think about this. You think of all of the saints of old. If you could resurrect Abraham or David or Solomon and you wanted, they, they told you they want the greatest experience of worship. They want the greatest picture of God. You could offer to them the modern wonders of the world or the discoveries of nature's glory and yet they would choose without delay to throw all of that away to sit here with you as God's gathered church to see the congregation saved not by substitutes but by the substance of God in Jesus Christ bound together by the wonder of the gospel the story of the Bible has always been a story of God redeeming a people for himself and the local church is at this point in redemptive history how he has done that the local church is where we together stand amazed at the gospel which saves us and the God who rules over us. The church is birthed by the gospel. But what do we do as the church? What are you doing in here right now? What am I doing in here right now? This is where the author of Hebrews goes next. The church is called together in sound doctrine. Read with me verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here we see that as the church is formed by faith in the gospel, the church is also called to help each other hold fast to the confession we have in the gospel. And this is actually to bring this near to our church. This is why this church exists at this station in life. In 1968, this church was birthed out of a desire to hold fast to this confession. I'm going to put her on the spot, and she's going to hate it, but Carol Lincoln, raise your hand in the back. There she is. Carol Lincoln was part of a congregation that chose to lose their pastor, their church building, and their church budget because they held fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The denomination we were a part of had given up the truthfulness of Scripture, they had invented ways to the presence of God, which were apart from the way that Christ opened up through his own body. It was embracing initial things of what is now popular in our culture today called the social gospel, that God exists to save society and not sinners. And they took a bold stand and held onto this gospel 
at great cost. They denied that they, the greater belonging wasn't belonging to a specific body, and instead a greater belonging was that a church body could only belong to God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that we have the responsibility together with the help of each other to hold fast to what God's word said is true about the gospel. Remember what we saw in Hebrews chapter three. Look at what is central to being part of God's house. Chapter three, verse six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we meet together. And we are his house if indeed we pledge to give our support to the church. And we are his house if indeed we are single ballot voters. And we are his house if indeed we do such and such. That's not what it says. What makes God's house God's house? if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It is a ruthless commitment to the gospel as declared in scripture, which makes a church a church. Look what Paul says in Galatians chapter one, verse six and seven. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and would want to distort the gospel of Christ. There is a gospel and there are false gospels and the church, the true church, is the church of the true gospel as revealed in scripture. And these passages might be kind of cringeworthy or or pressing on us for a number of reasons. The first is that our culture today fosters a sort of unity, which is no unity at all. Our society holds up unity as the absence of disagreement. In other words, if you want to be united with me, we must not disagree on anything. It's holistic and it's unrealistic. But that's no barometer for unity at all. Unity has always been a shared sense of agreement. It's not the absence of disagreement. Instead, it's convictional agreement on what is significant. For instance... I have some neighbors that we're getting to know in my neighborhood. I've talked to them only a handful of times. And in these conversations, I have discovered nothing of which we disagree. My wife and I, on the other hand, we have much we disagree about. Some small, some large. Some right, some wrong. But when there's a crisis in my life, I don't go run to my neighbor with whom I have no disagreement. I go to my wife. Why? because we have real unity. Unity on the most significant things in life. Unity on who God is, how, who he's made us to be, how he saves us, what's expected from us, how we are to love each other in the covenant of marriage. And that is true unity, that is binding unity. That is unity which presents love in difficult times. This biblical unity doesn't mean that all Christians everywhere have to have the same grammar of theology. We can faithfully join hands with churches that are Presbyterian or CMA or CLC, and we can say, you are equally a church. It doesn't mean that we have to have the same grammar of theology, but it does mean that all Christians everywhere need to have the same ABCs of doctrine, that we agree on what God has said saves us and how we are to respond as sinners saved by grace. That's what creeds and confessions have historically done in the history of the church. They don't create doctrine. 
They defend it from what is false and say this is what the church has always believed to be true and we refuse to move from what God has given to us. This kind of unity, this holding fast to a confession is uncomfortable culturally. But it might also be uncomfortable for you because part of the implication of this passage is that you ought to know your confession. You ought to know doctrine. You should know things for certain like is God a trinity or do we worship three gods, or two gods? Was Jesus just a good moral example for us to follow of what love looks like? Or was Jesus the actual substitute for our sins? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones finished his earlier quote about the spiritual man versus the unscriptural man, and he says this. He says, as a member of the body of Christ, it is your business, your duty, to see to it that the church visible in no way contradicts the doctrine of the Lord himself of which he has made us custodians and guardians. God has given us the responsibility to protect the truths of the gospel as the church, which would be an incredibly foolish thing to do if he didn't also give us the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But God has actually entrusted us, and God will see to it that his true church will endure in sound doctrine. But what is behind this stewardship of the gospel is not an arrogance of theology that puffs itself up to simply say, I'm right. And notice, the author of Hebrews does not just say, let us hold fast to our confession. Instead, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. It ties what we believe to what our hearts experience. We always want to be a church in which there are new believers and old believers, mature believers and immature believers, people coming to grips with the faith and people who have never heard the gospel until the first song is sung and first prayer prayed. And if you are a new believer, it might be intimidating to you to hear this, this call of like, what, what do you mean I need to know doctrine? I am just understanding who Jesus is. I have never read a theology book. I have no idea what superlapsarianism is. <laughs> Can I even be part of a church? But here's where you must understand that the confession you're to hold fast to is the confession of your hope, the simple hope of that which saves you. You see, to claim to be saved by Jesus is to claim a set of doctrines. It is to claim a confession. Your hope, your hope that you can stand before God in his presence is that even though you were a sinner, that Jesus was the perfect spotless son of God. Even though you failed, Christ didn't fail. Even though you were imperfect, Christ was perfect. And that he came and he died in your place. And he rose from the dead so that you know that you might have new life if your faith is in Jesus. That is a confession. That is doctrine. And that is the center of your hope. Without that hope, you have none. But with that hope, you have everything. And the wonderful truth we see here in this text is the implication that as you begin to know God more and more, as you begin to understand that confession more fully and more robustly, what is growing is not as much your knowledge of God as your hope in God. The more you know God, the more steadfast your hope becomes because what you will find through the doorway of God's word is that he is bigger, better, and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And so we want to together hold this as the church. What does this look like? I love this example. May this typify our church in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. It reads as this. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, 
competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, he didn't know what it looked like to actually follow Jesus with baptism and repentance. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples who were in Achaia to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. When Priscilla and Aquila saw Apollos eloquent in speech, but missing a key aspect of the gospel, they did not shame him and strip him of his ability and say, you silly, silly, dumb Apollos. They took him aside gently and explained it more fully the gospel of God. And the result was he was commissioned to go and tell others. He did wonderful things for the glory of the kingdom. We participate in this gentle correction of our confession when you sit right here and listen to a sermon. You experience this gentle correction when you disciple one another. The gospel is the center to all of our discipleship. You experience this gentle correction when we sing songs together. Johnny and the rest of the pastors here we talk about really silly things when it comes to lyrics and songs. Why? Because we want to make sure the songs we're singing are an adequate representation of the hope we're believing. We experience this correction, this gentle correction of doctrine every time we recite the Apostles' Creed every other Sunday. It teaches us. Here's this funny thing that happened in my family this week. We watched um, a movie which presented a body and soul dynamic which is contrary to what scripture holds to be true. And so I told my kids, I'm like, we could watch this provided we have a discussion on what the Bible says about this. And so I asked my kids, um, I said, what happened to Jesus' body when he died? And they were quiet for a second. And then my six-year-old daughter stood up, put her hand over her heart like she was saying uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. And she said, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the grave. But on the third day, he rose from the grave and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. <laughs> but the point was, she's learning. She's learning to gauge what is true with you guys. She can't read, but she can hear. And in so doing, you guys are helping all of these kids who are in here today. All of the kids that are part of the mom marathon in the back walking around. <laughs> They are hearing this doctrine. And they are, by God's grace, as we plead to one day believe it and be saved themselves. Now here's the thing. No one can have a perfect theology any more than we can perfectly know God. For that's what theology is. We can no more comprehend the vastness of God than you can walk yourself to the moon. And yet that God who is infinite has revealed himself in his word. And we are to know this to the best of our ability, not so you might pass a theology exam, but so you might have hope. And so that you might give hope to those who are also hopeless. We say that covenant membership at Sovereign Hope includes three things. And because we're Baptists, they're all Bs. That is that we believe together, we belong together, and we become more Christ-like together. We begin, the, the first tenet of membership is to believe together because that's what this text says. We believe together the essentials of the gospel, not just so that we have it right, but so that we have hope. 
And did you see how in verse 23, hope is the presupposition of that text. You might cling to it without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We live in a world, specifically in a Western society, where believing what God says about you and what God says about himself is becoming increasingly opposed. And this is why we're given the gift of the church. So that in verse 23, when we feel the rails of society against what God proclaims to be true, we might remind each other that he who promised is faithful. That the gospel you believe to get you here is good enough to get you there. That the gospel which saves us is the gospel which endures us. For we will remind each other that we are not ashamed of the gospel of God. That's the beauty of the church. And while the first commitment of membership at Sovereign Hope is to encourage one another by believing together, the following are that we belong together as a distinct community with a sense of responsibility for one another. And also that in that community, we become more Christ-like together by our actions. And this is our final point today. And that is that the church is called together for love and encouragement. I got it right the second time. Love and encouragement. Read with me here Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I want to make it clear that I'm preaching this passage as if I would approach this passage in 1616 or in 1987 or in 2021. And that is to say that I understand we are not in an ideal time as the church. There are people in here, there are people in that box on their TV screens who are wrestling with what it looks like in the midst of a global pandemic to glorify God, love others, and be true to their own conscience and not sinning. And so my goal in preaching this is not to shame anyone. In a religion that starts with being saved by grace, shame is a pretty lousy motivator. But my goal is to preach this text as it is uh, in understanding what it's saying in full and in an idealistic sense. And that's first that we see that the church is about more than knowledge and that the church is about more than attendance. If the goal of church was simply knowledge then it would be a lot more effective and a lot safer and a lot better use of the church's resources to write good books and theology texts and have Amazon Prime deliver them to closed countries rather than sending missionaries to die by the sword. That'd be a better option. If the church were just about doctrine, you could listen to your sermon alone at the gym. You could be listening to your sermon right now and feel no loss for what's going on. Why? Because you're hearing my words. Knowledge is being transferred. But what we know and what you know sitting at home is that as good as this is to have this wonderful grace by the modern invention of technology, there is still something which lacks and I want to tell you that that is a good thing because it reminds us of why God gives us the church in person. It reminds us of the hope we have not only in gathering here but the hope we actually have in heaven where we gather together without any inhibitions. But on the flip side of this, the church is not merely attendance. I knew of some friends who went to a Christian college that had every week a mandatory chapel. And what they would do is on the chapel, there was a card reader in the back that you had to check in on with your ID card. And they would go there and they'd scan their ID card and then they'd go play basketball. I'm here and I'm not here. (laughs) I wonder how many of us do that just a bit more faithfully today. We come to church, we sit in church, we sing the song, we say the prayers, We hear the words, and then we leave. 
but all we've done is swipe our card. But the life of the church is actually about participating in the love we have for Christ and for each other. At Sovereign Hope, this is why at the beginning of every members meeting, you will hear uh, the membership covenant recited from the members to the members and the elders to the members. We hold each other responsible for being engaged in love in the lives of those who are around us. You are actually agreeing to consider what it takes to help others follow Jesus and to also be helped by those who are around you as you follow Jesus. Membership takes the gaze of the believer and it fixes it on God and turns it outwards towards the other. I have a confession to make, and that is that when I was a college student at the University of Montana, uh, I went to many a campus ministries for one sole purpose— if you've been a guy in college, you know what that purpose is. It's to find yourself a honey. I didn't do very well. But I would go there, I'd walk into a room, and I'd immediately start gazing at the crowd, and I would begin to consider how one might stir another up for love. But here is a better and holier hope for the church. If we apply this passage well, when you come into this church, you become wonderfully aggressive with the sake of the gospel. You begin to look at those who are in here and you begin to consider in your hearts, how might I stir one up to follow Jesus better? How might I encourage this person in their walk with Jesus? How might I cause this individual to feel more loved by Jesus and more cared for the church? I want this church to be an incredibly painful place for anyone who wants to remain anonymous. Why? Because the gospel is here to bring us an identity, not in our anonymity, but through Christ's work and to bind us to a people. And why do we do this? It's so that we might help each other. There's a goal. Why do we encourage each other? Why do we bring each other into a community? So that we might love better and pursue good works better together. Our community here is committed to belonging to each other with the purpose that we might help each other become more like Christ. It should be normal. It should be normative. It should be part of what we're learning together as the church for you to be sitting at home or falling asleep at night and to consider the walks of your brothers and sisters in Christ. To consider how their devotions are, how their prayer life is, how their marriages are. Not so that we can feel better about ourselves when we're holier than they are, but so that we might actually help them because you want to love them. It should be normal for all of us in here to have conversations as we're stacking chairs, to be asked how your faith is, how your heart is, how we can encourage you. That kind of small talk should be normal and out of place when you're buying a bag of groceries, but it should be incredibly common in the church. Why do we do this? Verse 25, because the day is drawing nearer. What is the day? The day of the Lord. The day when we stand before God and we have to give account not only of our confession, but of our lives. We help each other live out the Christian life because this world is hard and life is short. And we need each other to do this well. Jesus did not call us into holy isolation, but into holy fellowship. Jesus died so that we might together draw near to the throne of grace as his people. The church is far more than what you do on Sunday mornings. The church is explicitly who you get to be Christian with. 
and hold each other to that standard. Hebrews shows really well that the temple in all of its beauty was a placeholder for this house of God, the church, the place where people don't come and are sorted based off their ethnicity or their race or their hobbies, but they are sorted by the unifying blood of Christ in their place, which makes the many one where we get to gather together to encourage one another, to worship one another, to grieve with one another, to care for one another as we behold together the presence of God in our assembly. But the church too is a placeholder. That's why when your friends or someone on Twitter or Facebook says, I don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrites, our entire theology of the church doesn't fall apart. (laughs) The church is filled with hypocrites. The church is filled with sinners. The church is filled with people who often exploit each other and harm each other and sin against each other. But praise God, this church is not heaven. And Jesus' work is not done to purify his bride. That our ultimate hope of gathering together is that one day we get a building where every saint throughout church history who has been cleansed by the veil of Christ's blood will gather together in a house finally big enough for the whole of us. In a place where our interpersonal issues and our petty sins will be finally and fully atoned for, where there'll be no threat of political persecution or pandemic weakness, but we gather together with every tear wiped from our eye and everyone embraced by the hands that were pierced for us. You see, our future as God's people does not become more unlike the local church. It becomes more like it. Together, worshiping God, working together for his glory. And it is because of that wonderful, eternal hope we turn ourselves to this glorious present. The church is not perfect, but it is God's perfect plan for us in this point of history. So let us be part of the many by the work of the gospel and give ourselves to love the church in the same way that Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are many things that are barriers to our mind and that is that when we hear the word church, we think of something disconnected from the gospel. That when talking about a church, we're just talking about a social club or a building or a particular embodiment But in talking about the church, we are talking about the gospel applied in the lives of those around us. We are talking about the gospel which saves us and makes the many one through the work of Jesus Christ. When talking about the church, we are talking about the center of our hope and those who hold us accountable with the encouragement of the gospel and the chastisement of repentance. So Lord, I pray that what we pass down to the generations coming up behind us is a biblical church so the gospel might endure long past when our bodies are in a grave because you are faithful. And it is a privilege to call people not just to Christ, but to Christ's bride. So Lord, make us faithful. Make us diligent as we consider each other. Bring us repentance. Bring us godly entrepreneurship as we consider what it's like to help others follow Jesus. We pray all of this in your name, amen.